0: Plushcare.com slash weight loss.
1: Hello and welcome to the CapEx Podcast. I'm John Ashmore, the editor of CapEx. We're here on one of our fortnightly topical podcasts. Joining us as always is my deputy, Alice Denby. Hello, Dallas. Hello. Lovely to have you here. And our guest this week is the reigning queen of the internet, uh, freelance journalist and CapEx contributor, Nicole Lampert. Nicole, welcome to the podcast. Great to have you you here. Right, we are going to divide this typical podcast into a few sections. As always, we're going to kick off with the rather grim news from Ukraine. Then we're going to talk about uh, Nicole's rather interesting experience on Twitter this week, which involved being uh, retweeted by JK Rowling, among other people. And then we're going to move on to Alice's story of the week, which is about COVID and uh, its effects on our nation's children. So we'll kick off with Ukraine. I mean, where else can we start? Because uh, the beginning of the week was marked by, I mean, what could only be described as the scenes of a massacre in several towns north of Kiev, but Butcher is the one that has been the focus um, of most of these uh, events. And there's been a kind of there's an avalanche of outrage and, uh, you know, opprobrium and condemnation as we've had throughout this. I mean, Alice, do you think this has actually materially changes policy towards this war? Have we seen actually anything? We've seen Putin's daughters sanctioned, for instance. But has there been a material shift after these images that we've seen of, you know, dead bodies, mass graves and that kind of thing?
2: I think this is one of the things that is so frustrating to us in the West, kind of outside the conflict. We've drawn a line saying we don't want it to escalate into a nuclear conflict. So all we can do is to continue to sanction and to provide as many weapons as we can. There's not much else we can do, and I think this clearly changes, in some ways, the sort of moral dimensions of the conflict. You know, this is clearly with what we're seeing is is atrocities. Yeah. But we've known, as you said on CapEx um, this week, that Russia is capable of this kind of genocidal violence. It's shown that. That's its playbook. Yeah. Um, so in a sense, no, I don't think it changes anything for us in the West ex- except just should sort of redouble our commitment to doing as much as we can to arm the Ukrainian people and to, to um, isolate Russia as much as we can with sanctions.
1: Yeah, I mean, we had the Ukrainian foreign minister on um, Radio 4 today saying... Basically, give us more weapons, give us well, more stuff. Well, I think
2: it's worth um, quoting him in full because I think there's a real moral yeah. force to what he said. So he said uh, to the Today programme, the deal that Ukraine is offering is fair. You give us weapons, we sacrifice our lives, and the war is contained in Ukraine. And I really think that there's a real moral force to what he said there.
1: Yeah, Nicole, what do you think about this idea that a line was crossed by what we saw in, in Butcher? As I said in the piece, and I'll come on to my piece in a minute because I want to talk about... Russian policy in general, there is something very visually arresting about seeing corpses in the middle of the street like that, uh, Just, especially with you know, their hands bound and things like that. But is this a material change, actually, or is it just a more visual expression of something we know has been going on throughout this war?
3: I think this is war, isn't it? This is nasty. War is nasty. It's about killing people, and I think we in the West have been protected from it, so even when it's happened our troops have been involved in wars abroad and we don't see it we we don't see the death the destruction it somehow feels less real to us so i think there is an element of this is just what war is it's it's nasty and and it involves death and obviously people are talking about war crimes because they're attacking civilians um so in, in that way yes a line has been crossed but you know, as Alice was just saying, like, how much further do we go? Because there are lines being crossed, but what do we do about that line being crossed?
1: Yeah, I mean, that, that is the kind of uh, million-dollar question, really. My, uh, my piece on CapEx earlier this week, um, I suppose my main argument was that actually this, this hasn't... This isn't a, a dramatic change. We should be appalled by what we saw in Butcher. But we shouldn't be surprised, because if you look at post-Soviet Russian army, Russian military, the way they have conducted their campaigns, they have used attacking civilians as a tactic of warfare throughout. I lived with a woman from Chechnya when my late teens, and she used to sit there and saying, very slowly, saying, all day, bombs, bombs, bombs. And it was just in a you know, slightly broken English, but you, you got the idea. They flattened her home city Grozny literally to within an inch it was the most destroyed city on earth at one point so in a way I don't I don't think it was it was shocking in a visual sense but not in a in a kind of tactical or strategic one likewise I mean you could see in, in Aleppo they basically flattened the whole city they bombed a the market three times in five minutes and killed sort of 70 people in literally in space of five minutes and that's those people are no less dead than the people who've been shot in the head in Butcher.
3: Is there an element um, where we've appeased Putin too much? Um, I've just been sent something about a TV show about uh, how we appeased Hitler because we just didn't realise how much of a monster he was. And we've let Putin get away with so much, the, the you know the instances that you, you mentioned, and so much more, obviously, two, two murders on British soil as well. Yeah. Um, so... Are we slightly at fault and not pushing back earlier? And our over-reliance on Russian energy. You know, it's been convenient
2: to us to overlook Putin's uh, nature because, you know, he's kept the gas pumping and he's kept sort of money flowing around the city of London.
1: I think the Hitler comparison is... I'm always slightly wary of, of World War II comparisons. We will we'll come on to this more because there's this <coughs> question of whether this constitutes genocide or not. I think British people especially default to World War II as their kind of go-to comparison because it's the one bit of history that basically everyone learns in school. But my view with Putin is that it's more instructive to compare him to previous Russian leaders or Soviet leaders. So he has said, for example, that he thinks that Peter the Great and Stalin are basically kind of equally important figures in Russian history. The way that the Russian relationship with Ukraine in particular is kind of fashioned by, it, by that history. You know, they've tried Moscow, if you like. I won't say Russia because Stalin wasn't Russian and the state he led wasn't Russia. But they've tried to basically extinguish Ukraine as a state before in the 1930s. Um, the Holodomor is often phrased as if it was a, a sort of unfortunate byproduct of collectivization. Where the the Russians were cack, the Soviets sorry, uh, the Soviets were, were cack handed and they, they exported all the grain, but it, it wasn't. It was a deliberate attempt to crush Ukrainian nationalism. They went into villages and took food out of people's houses. It wasn't just that they didn't farm properly. So, in that sense, you can see you can see history repeating within Russia and its environs without having to, to reference elsewhere. Um,
3: I suppose generally appeasement. I guess it's not just about the Nazis, is it? We've, we've, uh, do we? I know it's a word that we use about that, but it's it's also a word about, for example, you know where how what, what was the red line over Syria, and obviously Russia yeah. was involved with that yeah, too. Yeah. But uh, President Assad, how much do we let him get away with with gassing his own citizens?
1: Yeah, I mean, we can say that in twenty thirteen, the UK had an opportunity to to step in and didn't. There is a school of thought that. Uh, I should give credit to um, Stephen Pollard, who's one of our contributors, pointed out to me that basically that Ed Miliband is, <laughs> has a lot to hold his hands up to. And it was him who basically led Labour to vote against us intervening in Syria in 2013. Um,
2: I think we've had a lot of wishful thinking about Russia, if, it, if maybe appeasement is one way to put it, but maybe another is that we hoped that by kind of opening up um, and by kind of showing Russia a kind of welcoming open door that they would see that the Western values were better. And I think that was very naive.
1: Yeah, on the energy thing, I think there's also a question of lack of forethought and just thinking, well, what alternatives did we have? We have this enormous stock of hydrocarbons on our, our doorstep. Not so much in here in the UK, because we don't import that much Russian gas. But Germany, I think, is, I think, rightly in the kind of firing line. I think even and they're continuing to do it. It's quite remarkable. I think yeah. they spent... 35 billion, or the European Union countries have spent 35 billion on Russian gas since the war began.
3: And gave 1, million, 1 billion to Ukraine.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's obviously, you, pay, you get something back for that 35 billion, but still it seems um, rather... It, it seems as though we're still not going the whole hog. I mean, would you agree with that, Nicole? I, don't, I think that we've done a fair bit, but it's not like we've really grasped the nettle, to me. Uh,
3: certainly, the European Union could be doing a lot more, I think. Mm. Uh, And and I think we could, yeah, I think we could could probably be giving them more defensive weapons. I know that there's talk about it. Uh, Giving them tanks, perhaps. Uh, The thing is that you're dealing with a madman. Well, I don't, I mean, he's a madman, but he's a very clever madman. You don't know how he's going to behave. No one thought he was going to do this. So how do you, so you want to avoid nuclear war, but how do you... How do you help them, and and how do you know what's going to be his red line?
1: Mm. Yeah, I think one of the things that we definitely uh, had to take on board in the last month is that when Putin says something, he can be deadly serious about it. People didn't take seriously the idea that he might actually invade the whole of Ukraine. Yeah. And now we're paying the the consequences for it. Um, I mean...
3: I know that Boris appealed to Russian people but speaking to to a, a Russian friend who she's a student here and her family in Russia and I don't think appealing to the Russian people is going to help because they probably they just feel embattled they are surrounded by uh, propaganda so they just feel that this is the west attacking them now so I think it's got to be via more the oligarchs even more than we are and the people that, that do understand what's going on, not the general Russian populace.
2: I think we need to accept that this might involve some pain and sacrifice for ordinary citizens here, and particularly uh, in terms of getting off Russian gas in the middle of an energy crisis. This is going to affect. This is going to affect all of us. It's going to mean you know money and sacrifice for ordinary people here, and and I I think that we're prepared for it. It's just, you know, what's it going to be like when it starts. <laughs> when we start feeling it.
1: Yeah. yeah, we have an energy strategy that's published. We record this on a Thursday, just to uh, lift the curtain a bit. We record this on Thursday, and the government published its energy strategy today, which is all well and good, but the, the thing about energy policy is it tends to be pretty long-term. You can't just suddenly switch on and off energy sources. It takes a very long time. We're talking about putting eight new nuclear reactors in on existing sites. That's not going to happen overnight. I mean, especially in a country where, like the UK, where every single time you try to build anything... It takes about 10 judicial reviews and 100 recalcitrant MPs telling you they don't want it in their backyard.
3: Um, well, I, I wonder with that whether we're, we're now thinking about... I Because weren't the last nuclear stations built by the French? Are mm. we going to be a bit more careful about who we give our resources to it's, in terms of how can you tell who is a friendly country?
1: Yeah, it's certainly a thing about whether or not... Um, it's interesting, actually, because this week the, the Chinese are bidding for... A, um, A company, I think it's a Welsh company actually, that makes microchips Mm. and Ian Duncan Smith was up in arms saying, well, this is exactly the kind of thing we shouldn't be doing. We need to think more strategically. We can't be selling off things. So perhaps if the Russia-Ukraine situation, if any vague good can come from it, it will be about having a proper kind of strategic rethink about who our our friends are, whether that includes China or not uh, is a bit of a, a moot point. I want to come on to, though, So coming back to Butcher and Eyepin and uh, Hostomel as well, the other towns near Kiev. um, There is a question over whether what the Russians are doing constitutes genocide. I mean, Nicole, you've written a lot about the Holocaust and memory and genocide on the European continent. Is it important? Is the terminology here important? Is it? Does it matter whether we call these war crimes or atrocities or genocide?
3: Um, I think it probably does, and I think it's probably a war crime and not a genocide because I don't think he's attempting to wipe out the Ukrainians. Um, he's just trying to bomb them into submission. Uh, and and obviously a big part of it is because they see ukraine as little russia and they see the U- the ukrainians as russians uh, so i don't think they are trying to destroy the entire nation
1: yeah it's an interesting one because in the russian in sort of putinist ideology there is no separation between the two nations so how can we kill off a nation in their view ukraine doesn't exist i think most Ukrainians would probably take a different view to that. (laughs) And by that
2: logic, they're just destroying their own country. It makes no Mm. sense.
1: Yeah, I mean, trying to find logic in the kind of Putinist position is... um, thats kind of the whole point of their propaganda is it's baffling and there's constant kind of, uh, you know, parallel realities being created so no one knows what to believe at any any given Mm. point. Now, I mentioned, Nicole, that you've written stuff about... uh, quite extensively about the Holocaust and this week we had a bit of a, as I mentioned in the intro, we had a bit of a to-do on on Twitter where, now I, I, I think it's probably easiest if you just explain um, what happened more or less.
3: Okay, I'll, st- I'll start with the idea of the Holocaust and what it is. So the Holocaust is the genocide of the Jewish people by the Nazis uh, and when we remember them in Holocaust Memorial Day, we remember also, the other people that were killed by the Nazis, the other genocide of the Roma and um, and also the killing of the uh, people who are men- who were mentally and uh, physically impaired and and also of gay men and there are, there are lots of people that the, the Nazis killed for different reasons um, My other kind of bugbear is that everything bad ever is now. Uh, people say it's just like the Holocaust. Yeah. And I wrote an article, that, I think probably about 18 months ago, at the height of the pandemic, where people, anti-vaxxers, uh, were wearing yellow stars and people that didn't believe in lockdown. And it was all being compared to the Holocaust. Um, other things that the trans rights people are often using the Holocaust and saying it's just like the Holocaust. Um, These are sort of the
1: very online kind of hyper-activists.
3: They are, although obviously the people wearing the Yellow Stars, these were people that are out demonstrating and they were appropriating what had happened and and appropriating the fact that the Yellow Star was obviously worn... uh, The Jews were forced to wear the Yellow Star by the Nazis and it was one of the precursors to the genocide. So, um, and online, certainly, everything is equated to the Holocaust or equated to Nazis whereas I'm, I just kind of want to be clear and in my writing that the Holocaust was a very particular thing. It was the genocide of the Jews because of anti-Semitism. So that's, that's the kind of background and yeah. uh, so what happened was on Twitter as I mentioned trans rights activists are often saying this is just like the Holocaust and somebody had <clears throat> posted a picture of some book burning, which was one of the precursors of the Holocaust, um, saying, I'm deeply worried that we're sleepwalking into this. And then someone above that said, I can't... Was believe-
1: this about conversion therapy, the original, the reason they were posting that?
3: I don't know. It was, it was something to do with rights, and I'm not right. sure whether it was that or not, to be honest. Okay. It was... It, there's always that something
1: week. in the news these days, so there, there's there's a general atmosphere. It's quite a toxic debate, really.
3: Sadly, online yeah. the the trans rights row has been ongoing, very nastily, uh, for some time. Yeah. and there's something every day. Sorry,
1: so they put they put this photo up of, yeah. of uh, books burning at the, what the Institute yeah. of Sexology, I think yes. it was in Germany.
3: Uh, but they didn't say that, it was just a book-burning picture. And then somebody said, I can't believe they're invoking the shower." Then other people were say it's disgusting. And then someone kind of uh, called my name in, as it were, uh, and asked me to comment. And I just said it's out of order or disgusting. And I can't remember exactly what I said, but I just said it was disgusting. Uh, because it's not the same as the Holocaust. And then I got into a row with this man called Tom. And I tried to explain that although gay people and others in that community had been killed, it wasn't the Holocaust. And he couldn't understand... I don't think he really understood what I was saying, because I wasn't saying that they didn't go after gay people, they did, but not in any way to the extent that they were determined to wipe out the Jewish race.
1: Yeah. Um, Your point is, I mean, I wouldn't say it's a purely semantic one, but it's that the the Holocaust describes something very specific. Yes. And that things outside it are not that thing. They yes. can still be completely appalling and abhorrent yeah. without being that thing, yeah. which is very specific to European Jews.
3: And the, the reason it's very specific and why it's very important is because we, we're now at a time of rising anti-Semitism. Uh, the, the CST, which the Community Security Trust, which looks after um, Jewish people, we have security at all of our synagogues, they do the security, we have security at all of our schools, every year they're, they're recording rising figures of antisemitism and this is something that's happening all around the world yeah. so jewish people are on alert and we want people to be aware that antisemitism wasn't a thing that was born and died in the holocaust it is a live thing the the reasons people hate hated jews then are still around today so it's important that you understand what the what the holocaust was the hatred of the jews Uh, And it's important that you understand where, if you allow that hatred to continue, what it can lead to. And and obviously, this is all coming at a time where we just, you know, a couple of years ago, people were being asked to vote on a leader who was, in my mind, anti-Semitic and certainly allowed anti-Semites to run riot in his party. So it was an incredibly scary time for Jewish people.
1: It's particularly instructive seeing some of Jeremy Corbyn's old acolytes, I'm thinking here of Chris Williamson in particular, now appearing and just de- debating, I use the term very loosely, some of the craziest sort of conspiracy theories, and they are always about sort of the Zionist lobby. We yeah, have David, they're all linked
3: yeah. in. I don't, uh, so there's, a, there's a academic called uh, David Miller, mm-hmm. who recently lost his job at Bristol University, but this is after years of trolling Jewish students, and even... So even there was an even an incident where um, there was a synagogue and a, a, a Muslim community made chicken soup together to give to the homeless. And he said this was a Zionist plot. And he actually and he had a go at Jewish students um, saying that they were part of a Zionist plot and they were a key part of Islamophobia, that Zionism is one of the five pillars of, of Islamophobia in this country. And right. he and he right. says, and he was teaching this as part of his course at Bristol University. So when I did a bit of research into him, he's also pro Assad, denied Assad's war crimes, and he's on that radio show with Chris Williamson now.
1: He's been on Galloway's show on RT mm. as exactly. well, um, talking about this. Another quote of his, an extraordinary quote, not extraordinary in the context of what he said before, but he said that there's a Zionist hold over the music industry which is basically the kind of thing Wiley was saying as well before he was kind of... Well, I mean, he just totally lost the plot.
2: Um, It's interesting, isn't it, how all these conspiracy theories come together. So when you're talking about your experience this week, it it brings in so many different threads. So you have Mm. sort of the argument about trans rights, which is a a very toxic debate, we can all agree, wherever you stand on it. Uh, We also have these kind of claims of... you know, false flag attacks by the Ukrainians and it's all the same people and it always comes back to anti-Semitism. It's the oldest conspiracy theory and it gets woven through so many other uh, debates, particularly online, which
3: is, you know, the kind of swamp where these things breed. Um, There's actually something called the Triangle of Anti-Semitism that somebody had drawn, I don't know who it is, and there are different levels and, and towards the top there's the kind of, she's put the anti-Semitic point of no return and, All of those conspiracies lead to the idea that the Jews rule the world. The bizarre thing is, you know, we're seeing in Israel today um, and yesterday that they can't even hold a government together. That's how ridiculous the idea of this Jewish nation and power (laughs) You know, and yet another government may fall after years and years of having to have an election every year because they cannot come to an agreement. And this is over a ridiculous row about whether you can take um, unleavened bread because it's Passover soon into hospital. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At Blue you can design a one of a kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online.
0: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss.
1: Right, okay. I just want to go briefly back to your, um, we said at the beginning you were the reigning queen of the internet, which was actually something that Alice herself coined to describe (laughs) you. But the reason is because you you spoke about this guy, um, Tom Coates, who the the funniest bit was he said, maybe you should read this article. Yes. And you replied, I wrote that article. And I think, yeah, J.K. Rowling retweeted it. She did, and and she she
3: sent me a a note also to say how much she'd enjoyed
1: it. We need to explain the concept of beard-splaining, I think, because I haven't come across this. I should point out for listeners that I am a bearded man at this point. There's
3: the, the beard's blading, and it's not against all men with beards. Thank My you, husband also has a beard. <laughs> sometimes, when he can't be bothered to shave. Um, so the idea is the the row between over trans rights should in some it shouldn't be a row. First of all, it should be a discussion, and and it's become too toxic. But it's it's a dispute idea really between women's rights and the rights of trans people, and in in many ways it's not just of all trans people, that some trans women, who are males, who are now women. Um, but somehow, straight or gay, but not trans men, often with beards, <laughs> <laughs> which maybe depicts a, a, a demographic, um, they are the most vicious towards women on the internet. So it's, it's become a bit of a joke. And a few weeks ago, there were three American men they they were all journalists and they were they were all bearded blue ticks and they were all say it, they were talking they were american journalists and they were talking about britain which they called turf island and they like how did britain become such a, a cesspit of transphobia and they they're discussing the most ridiculous things so the whole of british twitter is laughing at them and these three bearded men right so yeah. it's become a bit of a thing and so this guy was a bit of he's a another beard telling a, a woman, telling a Jewish woman, what was, is, and is not the Holocaust. And I should just say, with that article, I did send it to him to read, to say, this is why I'm, I, it was something that I'd written, obviously, I'd, to say, this is why I'm upset at the misuse of the Holocaust, and explained really clearly, this is, and the reason is, because Anselmina is rising, and it's important that we know what the Holocaust was and what it led to. And so, yes, he found some quotes where I talked about the Holocaust is this, this, and this, and other people died. And then he said, well, you should read this. And I said, I read it. <laughs> and then Twitter went mad. But then he accused
1: you of contradicting yourself, which yes. I thought was hilarious. And yeah. then he blocked everyone. And then or took his account private or something. Digging, yeah, he kept digging, even after that. It's amazing. He
3: kept digging for a bit. But then, uh, so, yes, then I had a, a mad day where I was being retweeted and stop and then what followed that was the day after that, I was then accused of being a Holocaust denier. And, uh, and this was, I think, really to attack J.K. Rowling, because, I've, and I've written for CapEx, they've already tried to accuse her of being an anti-Semite.
1: Yeah, because um, of the goblins, apparently, a yeah. uh, sort of a Jewish stereotype. But...
3: Because of the goblins in, um, in the Harry Potter books, even though, we, you know, we've talked about how the goblins in the film... You could perceive it as an anti-Semitic trope, but that's not how she described the goblins in the book. Um,
1: yeah, they're not particularly... My recollection as a Happy Harry Potter ultra fan uh, is that they're not particularly... They don't describe them in that much detail.
3: No and, and she, the, yeah. no, and certainly in the film they have big noses. In the book, she doesn't describe their noses. So uh, so they, they love to attach anything they can to J.K. Rowling because she is a liberal woman... She is someone who went out of the Sunday Times rich list because she gave so much money to charity. She was a former um, single mom. She was a victim of domestic violence. And up, in, up until the trans rights rally, they probably agreed with her on most things. So they just, they're desperate to demonize her. So of course they demonize her by saying, you are supporting a Holocaust denier. So they're calling me, a Jewish woman, a Holocaust denier because they're saying that I am denying The Holocaust, even though my semantic point is the Holocaust was this. My other point was we don't know whether any trans people were rounded up at all unless they were either Jewish or Roma. Um, We do know that gay men were, but they went up 15,000 of them. And that's not an insignificant number at all. And they were treated abysmally, they were tortured, and many of them died in concentration camps. But they didn't gas them. And there were two million men um, attached to gay societies in Berlin at that time, or in, in Germany. And they didn't go after every single one of those like they did every single Jew. So that was my, I wanted to make that distinction that they, yes, they, hate, they didn't like gay people. It, wasn't, it didn't fit their Aryan ideal, but they didn't attempt a genocide like they did of the Jews and of the Roma.
1: Yeah, I think what your experience highlights, particularly in kind of modern internet discourse, is that a lot of people find it, either genuinely find it very difficult to hold two ideas simultaneously in their heads, yeah. or they like to strike a pose. Yeah. This is what I think is behind a lot of this behaviour. Yeah. It's not even about the argument of whether they believe one thing or even a kind of moral outrage. It's just yeah. about saying, I'm in this camp. Yeah. And I'm really in this camp because I'm going after you with the worst insult I can come up with, yeah. mm. which is to call someone a Holocaust denier. Yeah, There's, there's little worse than that in the well, pantheon. Well, and to call a,
3: a Jewish woman Particularly a to call denies. a
1: Jewish woman a Holocaust denier. <laughs> but, it's, you know,
3: similarly, they call me a Nazi. I've been called a Nazi many times because... They're
1: always calling Israel Nazis. It's the yeah, same thing. So it's the most it's a offensive a of thing. It it? Is
3: it's a form of anti-Semitism. It is a form of anti-Semitism. Yeah. yeah. So they're trying to put it back at you. So yeah, for example, today I got a nasty tweet calling me a Holocaust denier from someone who has in their bio Cor- Corbin fan. It was a scam. So the it was a scam hashtag is saying that the idea of Corbin and anti-Semitism um, isn't true. So this is someone who denies anti-Semitism when it's right in front of their face, and they're calling a Jewish woman a Holocaust denier. Mm. and i think we should i think this bring we should
2: say that this isn't just an internet phenomenon as you say the leader of the labor party you know th- that was real politics yeah. that really happened and and this week yeah. with um with uh the whole trans debate we've seen the government perform a, a double u turn on plans uh, uh to ban conversion therapy and, and it's had to cancel what was meant to be this kind of flagship lgbt conference that was going to be kind of leading the way yeah. on debating gay rights they've had to cancel it because of a debate uh You know, over conversion therapy for trans people, and I think it just shows how toxic debates like this that happen online can really bleed into real life, and we shouldn't just kind of just think it's a Twitter phenomenon. Oh no, yeah, yeah,
1: absolutely not. I mean, we remember as well last I think it was last year there were people kind of driving around London sort of screaming anti-Semitic abuse in in, in Jewish areas of London, particularly. Yeah, in May last year. Um, And, yeah, I mean, in Paris yesterday, I think it was a a disabled Jewish guy was hit by a train
2: because
1: he was running away from a a mob. So, yeah, I don't think anyone would suggest it's purely online. But I think the the facets of debate very much lend themselves to internet culture.
3: And in some ways, um, the internet allows these things to be debated... For example you know what happened with the trans rights and stonewall and stonewall inveigling its way into so many different organizations and you see the use of the word mother removed from maternity um, literature in scotland because stonewall has got in there and everyone is too afraid to say but that's wrong so in some ways the fact that we've been able to have debates online when, when we just to go back to those 3 bearded men. Um, <laughs> they they were like it's because of mum's net. Right, <laughs> so yeah. I
2: remember this. Yeah, it's a real kind of demonization
3: of sort of middle-class mums. Yes. Yeah. Um anyway, yeah. Yeah, the, the, I mean the, the, so mum's net was a place for online for women. So if you're a mother, you're very aware of your what your body does and is capable of and the uh, and both its pluses and its minuses it i think being pregnant nothing makes you realize more about your femininity um so so the idea that it's wrong that women should talk about what a woman is and and what their what spaces they feel comfortable in on a website for mums is wrong or that they should be demonized for that um is, was interesting and funny at the same
1: time <laughs> but speaking of um parenting more broadly mm. so we, we are going to come on to our sort of final section so Alice has chosen her kind of story of the week and it's about there was a report into the effects that lockdowns have had on um, young it's very young children wasn't it sort of one to two yeah to one two year to the, early
2: years setting so this is a really upsetting read they've found examples of babies who can't respond to basic facial expressions because they've only ever seen adults wearing masks um they found children are really behind in speech and communication. Some of them speak in sort of cartoon voices because they spent mm-hmm. so much time watching TV. Um, and, you know... So they this found... really rings true, so yeah. I'm just thinking uh, my daughter says some things
1: in an American accent now.
2: <laughs> so. Apparently American children speak in pepper pig voices. Yeah. So See, that's good, so it can be a good, good thing, <laughs> yeah. Um,
1: Recolonising the US <laughs> um, cartoon pigs.
2: But look, this is particularly upsetting because there's a lot of evidence that shows that the first kind of a 1,000 days of a child's life can set their prospects for their entire life. And um, so this is going to have a lifelong effect on these children. And I think it just... You know, we might feel now like we've put the pandemic behind us, but we're still going to be living with the effects of this for years to come. And and for me, uh, this is just further evidence that these blanket lockdown measures that we had particularly affected the most vulnerable people in the society. I mean, who's more vulnerable than a very young child? And I, I just think this is something we're going to be living with for a long time. And we need to ask ourselves really serious questions about how we handle the pandemic and the impact it's had on our children.
1: Yeah, I think we have that. I mean, there is an inquiry slated, my feeling is it will probably take forever to report just the sheer volume. I don't know, Nicole, do you think there's an appetite for that inquiry? and for? I I totally get where Alice is coming from, especially with this kind of report. But I wonder if there's a section of the public that just wants to forget about it and move on.
3: I think there has to be an, an inquiry. But I, I think, I don't think we had a choice because we didn't know what was coming. Uh, so I don't think we had a choice but to lock down because we didn't. We didn't know at that point that it was mainly killing older people, uh, so we didn't know that it wouldn't kill children. The Spanish flu mainly killed younger people, so I think, I think for, for those reasons we had to. But of course, it's it's horrific. Um,
1: my my view, for what it's worth, is that we've kind of got into this argument where it was, and we did during COVID as well, that it was either A or B. You were either locked down or not locked down. Whereas my issue with the government on that was that there were so many ridiculous rules that made life so much worse for people that were completely unnecessary. All the taped-off playgrounds and park benches. Yes, exactly. They should have been like, you can go outside whenever you want. Yeah. Because they knew really early on that the risk of transmission in outdoor settings was really low. Fine, maybe don't go to a football match where you'll cra- crammed together outside. But it was, you know, it was in the spring. People were only allowed out once a day during the first lockdown. I mean, yeah. I think in hindsight that was, was absolutely ridiculous. Yeah, I
2: think, I think I I think, there were choices. We didn't have to have such blanket lockdown measures. We made the choices, for example, that people who worked, say, in delivery kitchens could go to work because that was a frontline service, but we had to close early years' nurseries. And then in the second lockdown, nurseries stayed open. So there were choices, and I think the government should have had much more of awareness of, of how these lockdowns were going to affect the most vulnerable people in society. Um and I, I just, yeah, I think when we, in the final analysis, there'll be a lot of questions to answer. I
1: and mean, we're looking at a kind of weird, it feels like we're looking at a snapshot of the past in China at mm, the moment. You see in yeah. Shanghai, people, even the shops are closed, so people have to get their food, like, delivered to them by the government. Mm. It's absolutely, I mean, it's... It's absolutely... strange, though,
3: because there were some people that really wanted to prolong lockdown and, and, yeah. and, the ide- and, you know, are scared at the idea that we are so open up.
1: Yeah, every time that we've, um, every time we've opened up, there's been a chorus of people saying, oh, my God, this is going to be a yes. bloodbath, hasn't there? Yeah.
2: Well, in the second lockdown, Labour was saying... I remember this because we were watching the announcement thinking, please, please don't close the nursery. <laughs> <laughs> um, really having to work with a two-year-old at home was going to be a nightmare for months. And when he said, and, uh, early year settings can stay for me and my husband, oh, thank yeah. God. And then Keir Starmer pops up and says, we really, really should be closing the nurseries. Yeah. I mean... Knowing how damaging this is for young children, yeah. I just think
3: there were always people who wanted to go even further. Yeah, and, and the same with the schools. My kids are older and school age, and they—I don't think they learned a thing in in the whole of lockdown. The mm-hmm. whole time they weren't at school, even when the first lockdown, they didn't really have any online lessons. It was a nightmare trying to educate them. They just—they didn't—they didn't definitely didn't learn anything. Uh, the second one, they—they were—you know—they had videos or whatever. I still think they learn very little. So although my kids, you know, I don't have to worry about knowing how to speak, I am worried about where they are educationally. And I hope that actually going forward, that's something that the government looks at. Like, you know, my my older son, he's doing his GCSEs next year, but effectively he's kind of missed two years or 18 months of maths lessons and of science the things that you you need to build upon yeah Yeah.
1: what do you think the best answer I mean is it furious catch-up from schools or cramming or do you think there's a case for maybe delaying actually exams for some people
3: I think probably neither. I think what they are doing is that they are actually testing to see where the, the school cohorts are mm. compared to where they're meant to be. Yeah. I think they need to do that. And if they're not where they're meant to be, they need to make sure that that's kind of taken into the exams. Yeah.
1: As I understand it, and you probably know better than me, I don't have school-aged children, but grades are allotted comparatively anyway. So if everyone's kind of had the same more or less the same experience, and yeah. that will be reflected. Yeah. Your grade is as a, as a percentile of the overall cohort, right? Yeah. So, in a theory... The bigger problem yeah. is just that they don't know the same amount as they would have done otherwise, yeah. Right? yeah.
2: But this is going to be a problem when you talk about making comparisons because there will be children... So, there's a private school, most obviously, but also yeah. children with you know, maybe parents who didn't work so could spend more time doing... Yeah. Uh, Homeschooling, or just you know, so it's going to be again the most vulnerable children, yeah, who are going to suffer the most. There are
3: some children that still haven't gone back to school. Mm. I think, aren't there something like half a million that still haven't gone back to school Mm. Uh, because they they have they're either vulnerable or they had someone vulnerable in the family, right? Okay, so there is a whole other it, issues. It's,
1: it's weird because COVID is now probably as widespread as it's ever been. Yes, I think it was five million cases or something. I right? think it's
3: more than week like the, or so. the peak. Yeah, it's really weird the because death we rate are now is very it. low. Like, yeah, yeah, we are now That's living with it, and I think there is an element of: well, if you have chosen not to have your jabs, then it's down to you to, to make that decision. But obviously, mm. you know, I know people, I know someone who died at the start of the year who had had jabs, but was you know had underlying issues but he was a 50 year old man who's left two children so it's still a horrible killer but we do i suppose you know we do have to move on with life just for the reasons that you're spelling out we can't have the schools off again we do need people to get back into the workplace we do need life to continue we've had two years i I don't you know there's a lot of discussion at the moment about what happens if there's a new uh variant in the winter. Do we could we lock down again? I just don't know that anyone is going to have the appetite to lock down
1: again um I would say uh, certainly in this office, there will be very <laughs> li- <laughs> very little appetite for another lockdown um and i don't think yeah, I don't think the public is psychologically in a place to to do that, and yeah. also it's about political capital, I think yeah, I think the government's now not in a place where it can compel people to do stuff because of all the yeah. the party yeah. stuff haven't um,
2: their own rules so right no on, that, on that on yeah.
1: that um, warning note, so no more lockdowns please. Uh, We're going to wrap things up for today. Alice, thank you very much as ever Nicole, thank you so much for being with us and I look forward to your next piece on CapEx as you are a CapEx regular and if you haven't read Nicole's pieces I do encourage you to have a look for them Okay, thanks very much and next week's episode will be with the Cuban human rights activist Rosa Maria Paya so do tune in for that, it was a really interesting interview and uh, well worth a listen